Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Today, got a great episode for you with my friend Jim Rutt, who is a expert in complexity. He's the chairman at the Santa Fe Institute, which is a transdisciplinary complexity research institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so Jim has been, uh, like I say, banging his head against the problem of complexity for a long time. So he brings some great insight into that. We talk about complexity. We talk about uh, our inability or our ability, rather, to filter out the signal from the noise and take all of the myriad inputs and try to distill them into some kind of understanding. We talk about the different layers of complexity and how they're nested in our world and how we can think about them. We talk about holacracy. We talk about downward causality. We talk about a bunch of stuff and we say the F word about 11 times. (laughs) Jim is super fun to talk to. We get along great. And so uh, this is a great episode that doesn't need too much introduction. So if you guys like this show, do all the sherry subscribey stuff as well as consider donating that's paypal.me slash airy in the air without further ado here's my second talk with my friend jim rutt of Virginia. (laughs) Good to hear, buddy. Good to hear. Yeah, it seems pretty nice here in Central Oregon as well. A bit too windy to be out paragliding, but here we are on a call with Jim Rutt, so that's sweet. What's up with you? How you been lately? I've been pretty good. We're, you know, still maintaining major phase one vigilance, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, not dealing with anything, staying at our very remote farm, going to the grocery store once a week to pick, uh, do a computer generated pickup order. Oh, uh, really? And that's it. You know, we mm-hmm. are, you know, definitely hunkered down. Uh, looks, mm-hmm. and, you know, I predicted that the uh, Corona would come roaring back as we uh, failed uh, in two ways as a society. One, we didn't clamp down hard enough. Uh, and the other part of it uh, are closely related. Humans can only maintain vigilance in the rut rule for about 10 weeks. <laughs> and, uh, interestingly, June 1st was about 10 weeks. And sure enough, uh, people started losing their shit, and licking each other's eyeballs and all that sort of stuff. And surprise, surprise, the virus doesn't give a fuck about what humans do, right? It, has it, it doesn't care what we think, doesn't care about our tribal politics, uh, doesn't care what we think about face masks. It just does its thing, right? 
predictable as hell. It'll come roaring back. So, uh, you know, I'm frankly uh, prepared to hunker down for a year if necessary. Well, I, uh, I'm sorry that you just described me as well. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to um, be vigilant for that long. And also I feel like I feel myself like almost hardening to people or like I felt myself at the river yesterday. I'm sitting on this really secluded little piece of beach. It's near my house and there's like voices of people on the trail. And I just like have this anxiety. I'm like, I hope they don't come. Like I hope they don't find me here. I hope they don't find me here. And it's like, just, I'm you like, a, jump in the river or something. Right. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And, but it's so weird. Cause I'm just like, I'm hyper social. I always have been for my whole life. And so for me to feel anxiety at the, at the thought of encountering strangers is absurd that's yeah. fucking absurd for me like yeah, yeah i know what you mean because i'm also a very social person you know i have a gift for gab i love hanging out with yeah. people slapping them on the shoulder you know uh, mm -hmm. telling bullshit stories having you know thing i love i probably miss the most are my rather many casual lunches with yeah. random friends and acquaintances right mm -hmm. but I can, I'm also capable of being a vigilant motherfucker. So, you know, yeah. you have to you just lay that overlay on top. You go, you know, <laughs> I know. Vigilance. I, and I uh, know. and I it know. is weird, though. Particularly, you know, in some sense, it would be nice to be an introvert, right? In which case, it would be easier, probably. But yeah. as a stone-cold extrovert, <laughs> uh, you know, one has to be willing to, you know, dial in, uh, you know, one's vigilance and just say, all right, vigilance trumps extroversion. Mm -hmm. yeah it's that's strange and i also feel like you're in a you're in a phase of life that makes that a lot easier i think that if you were 20 your ability to be vigilant and hunker down in the in your farmhouse that didn't exist uh would be a lot more difficult and so I think yeah, it is true particularly if i was 20 and single Right. Yeah, no uh, shit, right. Yeah, you have. Fortunately, I'm very happily married. Been married 39 years, and my wife and I get along famously, and so and we are each other's best friends. So uh, that does make a big difference. If I was single and living alone, uh, I'd probably going nuts, right? Yeah, which is crazy to think because there's so much of the population that is living in exactly that kind of circumstance. Yep, I, and I do definitely uh, feel for those people. In fact, from the very beginning. Uh, the wife and I have said, you know, damn, we're lucky uh, in lots mm -hmm. of dimensions, but particularly mm -hmm. we have each other, right? And mm -hmm. uh, to be doing going through this by yourself would suck major donkey dicks. It really would. <laughs> no kidding, dude. No kidding. Yeah, it's crazy uh, how we're seeing things unfold here, and not that surprising. But you know, the the ability for us to carry out what we think is best practice is a huge gap like there's this huge gap you know i think that what we're seeing is that knowledge is not the issue knowledge is not the issue like can we predict what might happen yeah sure can we make best practice on that yeah but like the coherence Coherence is our issue, it seems, right now. Like, coherence yeah. is absolutely the issue. Every single, every single thing that we zoom into, that we find the, the, the Mandelbrot, the fractal of, of complexity as we keep zooming into it, we just 
It just seems to me that coherence is the issue over and over. Coherence and embodiment, that's the two things I would say, coherence and embodiment. And I would say there's a payoff between the two. And I think you're right that those are the two big key ones. Uh, and then I think you can find a metric uh, that, set, that shows to what degree we aren't there, uh, which is uh, the intention action gap, mm. right? Uh, you know, we all know we should exercise more, you know, eat less shit, mm, right? Mm. Uh, you know, get eight hours of sleep, you know, all that good stuff. But do we? Most of us don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think part of it is that uh, in our hyper-individualized society, it's become your personal problem to make to, to, get, uh, to fill this intention action gap. When in reality, we, we've evolved as a very social mm -hmm. group animal right where if you weren't acting quite right within you know good norms then all your friends made fun of you right mm -hmm. and uh, or you know gently nudged you back towards the group norms and i suspect that closing the intention action gap is going to require a new form of social uh small to medium group coherence uh something mm -hmm. below the dunbar number where you will uh, sort of make commitments to your peers, whatever that means, and you, they will, there will be a mechanism for you to signal each other when you're out of compliance, right? You know, kind of like the exercise group thing, right? Why, is, why do, for, for a lot of people, does group exercise work? Because they're kind of making a social commitment to other people to be there every, you know, every other day at 10 o'clock or whatever, uh -huh. as opposed to just being there by yourself every day at 10 o'clock. I think uh, for the social uh, beast that Homo sapiens is for many, many people, uh, you know, the social commitment actually is stronger than the personal commitment. That's a really interesting insight. And I think you're totally right. There's, you know, the first thing you said of, you know, it, it brings up in me, like, listen to the experts. No, we, we need to listen to the experts. I'm like, well, the fucking experts have been telling you that cornflakes are terrible for your kids for, for decades. And you still, you know, like, dairy and like all the things that we eat and all of the practices that we have and we know how detrimental our screens and our social media and there's so many things that the experts are like hey this is killing us and and then we're like nope earmuffs earmuffs for that and then we're just we re raw at listen to the experts listen to the experts <laughs> or like earmuffs for that no listen to the experts and i was like holy shit and you're so right that we are so social and it's amazing. I'm reading the book uh, Sacred Economics by Charles Eisenstein, which really mm -hmm. very good paints a beautiful picture of how we really, you know, the individuated self is an illusion. The, the creation of this separateness is like pretty new. This is a pretty new thing. And Yes and no. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, and this is where we have to figure this shit out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is really going on? You know, truthfully, there always has been a separate person. And people who say there isn't uh, really are uh, indulging in wishful thinking in my mind. Mm -hmm. However, that separate person is not uh, is only in for humans only really defined in terms of its relationships with other humans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I reject this theory that uh, separateness is an illusion because uh, I can define very briskly who you are physically. You want me to do that? I can, I can tell you what parts of you are you. Uh, and it's very simple, just simple uh, chemistry, 
a little bit of physics, but mostly chemistry. Uh, U are those cells which are in a uh, homeostatic uh, network relationship with exchanging gases, oxygen in, CO2 out, and nutrients in and toxics out on a second-by-second -second basis. Mm -hmm. And that's you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can therefore say that you are not your fingernails, mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, and you are not your hair. Mm -hmm. However, you are your hair follicles. Mm -hmm. uh, so this thing is quite precise, this definition. And uh, it's, it's the homeostasis that has to be kept going second by second, which defines uh, you, the organism. And then you can define you, the uh, central nervous system, emergent consciousness, uh, as that beast, 100% of which is instantiated on you and whose job it is, basically, uh, to make you uh, operate in the world such that you survive long enough to have offspring. Uh, or do whatever else you might choose to do. Mm -hmm. But from a Darwinian perspective, uh, you evolved uh, to survive long enough to have offspring. Uh, and so therefore, I think you can say that the you is real, both physically and uh, as the platform for your cognition, that a cognition's uh, job is to essentially steer the you. However, uh, because of the way humans evolved, and every animal evolves somewhat differently in this respect, it's just almost meaningless to be a, it is meaningless to be a you by yourself. You'd starve mm -hmm. instantly, right? Uh, you know, the, one of the cool things about humans is we can live in un, under almost any circumstance, again, un, unlike most other animals. But could you imagine being plopped down naked in the Arctic in the middle of the winter? Uh, you know, you'd last about mm, 10 minutes, or, literally, right? Yeah. And yet, uh, you know, Inuit peoples have been living up there successfully for tens of thousands of years because they've collectively organized a way of acting uh but but the interact but those interactions are between individuals and it's keeping those two things in mind which strikes me as uh the difficult thing to do people want to collapse to one way or the other either to yeah, yeah. and and randian ultra individualism or to kind of moony uh, new agey uh cosmic consciousness horseshit mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and in reality it's uh it's we talked about before complexity. You know, complexity mm -hmm. is the emergence of higher levels of organization from simpler underlying components. So in yeah. this case, the, the simpler underlying components are individual humans, who I can tell you down to the set, down to the micrometer, which is which is you and which isn't right. Uh, but they uh, they communicate using all kinds of signaling modalities, and then the emergent phenomena is greater and different than any one individual. Mm -hmm. This is really interesting. And I think that, I think that we agree. I am a, you know, as a athlete, I have to look out for the cells that are contained here. I'm, I'm trying not to splat these cells on the rocks. Yeah, you, you're more, more exactly. You don't <laughs> want to stop the homeostasis. You don't want to stop the exchange of gases, mm -hmm. toxic uh, food, and toxins, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, but and the if you thing stop is, it for long, guess what? You're dead, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the the reality of the individual that you're describing, the cells that are me, the line between me and not me, I think is actually a lot blurrier than we give credit to because the, the homeostasis that is me doesn't actually exist without some kind of 
homeostasis that my, the food that I eat that becomes me has to come from somewhere. And that makes the lettuce as much a part of me as my mouth, right? Like the, when you talk about the homeostasis, like the homeostasis that is my physical body is nested inside of this greater complexity. And I agree that there is a way for us to look at myself as an individual that is almost meaningless as a larger story. And I think that that's what Eisenstein is really getting at here is if we look at the stories that have pervaded our consciousness, that have taken over, that have really like paved the road in which we hold the throttle of humanity open on, it is this story of separateness. And it is not a nuanced it is not a nuanced separateness like you're talking about. It's not, a, it's not a both and. It's not a separate but maybe meaninglessly separate. It is actually a separate for separateness. And, you know, this goes all the way down to the PJ Prodhorn, like uh, what is property? And, and, and can, can humans who didn't create the earth, can we part and parcel it out to actually own it? And that just like the the things that arise from the narrative of total separateness and an unnuanced narrative of separateness is what we see. I mean, Eisenstein looks at it from all these different um, elements, but I agree with you that I am both. And I am uh, merely a cell in an organism. And I am also a complex mashup of cells that I have my own organism. And so it really is a both and, and I feel like this, we just approach the, the reality of the lack of nuance that we are, um, that we're struggling with. And I think this is a perfect segue into what I want to talk to you about, because I think that you're one of the, you're kind of on the leading edge of this, or at least you've banged your head against it for a long time. And this is like the idea of complexity and how do we hold it? Because I think what we're talking about right here is taking the complex nature of who we really are, what we really are as humanity, what we really are as individuals, what we really are as sub Dunbar number groups, what we are as 8 billion people. This, the world is really big and my head is really small, right? And so how do we fit that? How do we hold it? And, and, um, I have some ideas and, you know, the last talk we ended with and you said, Oh, maybe next time we'll get into some of your sports. And I have, I have my own interactions with complexity that I really like uh, put my life on the line to interact with complexity, but I would love some background. I, you were the uh, chairperson or the president or something at the Santa Fe Institute. And uh, I'm curious. Chairman. Yeah. Yeah, I was also a researcher there for uh, quite a while. Yeah, so, and, so what, is the, what is the Santa Fe Institute? Uh, well, Santa Fe Institute is a uh, radically transdisciplinary research institute. We don't have students. We have a few, but we don't actually give degrees. Uh, you know, it's about a dozen uh, faculty members who live on campus. 
typically 15 to 20 postdocs, which are people already have their PhD, kind of the first professional job, often before they become professors elsewhere. And then, I don't know, 100 plus members of our external faculty who come to campus, uh, you know, at least once a year, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for a few months. And uh, all these folks are focused on the science of complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the emer essentially, uh, how do higher level things emerge from simpler things? In mm -hmm. fact, one of our founders, Murray Gelman, the Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist, the guy who discovered quarks, or at least named them, mm -hmm. uh, used to remind the community periodically, uh, he at last passed on recently, uh, that the real name for our work here is not complexity science, but the science of complexity from simplicity. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, you know, at one level down, you look at this, whatever this is, and we'll talk about the levels of emergence in a minute, uh, as simpler than what emerges at the next level up, right? Uh, in the same way, you could say that culture is more complex than individual humans. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, you know, individual humans, uh, this is the uh, terminology I've added to the complexity perspective. Individual humans are the dancers and society is the dance. Mm -hmm. And so there's uh, you know, that, that, and again, this is this dynamic tension between reductionist science and complex science. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people who, you know, what I'd call them hobbyist complexitarians start denouncing reductionist science. And I go, well, no, reductionist science is useful and indeed necessary at various places uh, in analyzing the stack. But the, then you have to realize it's not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you have your reductionist description uh, for something simple. Uh, and then you have the complex explanation or uh, science of their interactions. But now this is where it gets interesting. And this is the real story. There's a stack of these complex and simples, at least 27 levels deep. A uh, very wonderful book by Harold uh, Morowitz, one of my uh, intellectual godfathers. Uh, again, rest in peace, uh, Harold, um, uh, who wrote a book with, uh, defined 27 levels from, you know, subatomic physics on up to something like the economy, right? Uh -huh. And and this is, this is the hard part of really getting your head around complexity science. Because I talked, you know, the complex and the simple, human and society. Well, guess what? The human can be thought of as complex mm -hmm. at the next level down of, his very, of your various systems, blood, food, uh, gases, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can look down at the cells. And the cells can be looked at as simple building blocks, but inside the cells is vast complexity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then they're built out of molecules, and the molecule can be thought of as simple, but if you look at the atomic structure of a molecule, it's unbelievably complicated. Well, not as complicated as a cell, but it's still a lot more complicated mm -hmm. than the molecule. So essentially, we have this nested series of, of the complex and the simple. Mm -hmm. uh, I have recently discovered a new vocabulary for that, which I've not yet prepared to push into complexity science, but I do, I have started using it in my game B world, which is called holacracy. Uh, and the mm -hmm. idea is that uh, the concept of a holon, which is that uh, everything, except perhaps at the very bottom, if there is a bottom, and at the very top, if there is a top, you know, the top being the universe, and the bottom being, I don't know, some physics at the level of the Planck distance, uh, everything else it consists of that every object that you look at is both a whole and a part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the human is a whole living in society, uh, but your 
your liver is a part within the human, mm -hmm. right? So these things regress downward. And so that if you uh, discipline yourself to look at every object as uh, such that it is always both uh, a whole for the things inside it and a part to the things that uh, for which it is inside of, I think you are starting to approach the kind of wisdom we were feeling towards earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is, this, um, you know, I referenced the Mandelbrot there, but the Mandelbrot is a perfect visualization of this. This, I think that when you say 27 layers there, the, those are just the ones that we can put words to, but realistically it's a spectrum. And as you zoom in on anything, it just gets more complex. And, and I love that idea that you could take from the entire universe, the universe is simple and then it's complex and then we could simplify something and these layers of complexity um you know and i think that what you said about outing reductionist science is something that i um i i'm curious about because um my girlfriend is a holistic health practitioner and i am an action sports athlete and so if I break my leg, I don't want turmeric. Like I want turmeric at some level, but like surgery is something that I have. I'm not willing to throw that out. I'm not willing to throw out ibuprofen or Oxycontin or, you know, any of these things that might really be helpful in that instance. But to try to hold them all as having a piece, you know, containing some piece of wisdom, some piece of knowledge, it seems to be the sweet spot. Yeah, and then realizing that it's okay to operate at both levels, right? Mm. And you, you pivot between them. Mm. Uh, you know, you pivot between the reductionist analysis of the behavior of the simple, but then you don't lose track of the fact that the simple is embedded in the complex. And that they're hierarchical, they're nested all the way up, all the way down from whatever's at the bottom, which we don't know. Our physics tools can't get below the quark, though there is some evidence there's something below the quark. Uh, and we think there's a universe of finite size and scope, but we're not even sure of that. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there are cosmological theories, uh, so-called continuous inflation, uh, in which maybe the universe is of infinite scope. I hope not, actually. An infinite universe produces fucked up shit uh, in a philosophical sense. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, this is uh, one of my favorite little thingies to talk about, that if the universe is infinite, we almost certainly live within a simulation. Mm -hmm. uh, if the universe is not infinite, then we almost certainly don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, I prefer a real universe rather than a simulated universe. So therefore, merely on aesthetics, I reject infinite universe. I love that. I'm pretty aesthetically oriented too. So I, uh, I like that. Yeah. And hmm, that's a really interesting point. That's a fucking rabbit hole, Jim. That is a rabbit hole. <clears throat> so, that, is, that is a rabbit hole. And, and if you want to really blow your mind, have you, you ever heard of Boltzmann brains? No. Okay. Now here's, here, here's one of my favorite fucked up implications of a, of an infinite universe. Okay. Uh, if we assume an infinite universe that it, that operates quantum mechanically like most, like our current universe, which is that shit happens at random. Uh, and it's unusualness uh, is a matter of probability. Like for instance, it is possible 
uh, according to the mathematics of quantum mechanics, that all the air in your room could collect in a corner and you could die, right? Now, the probability of that is so low that it's not worth worrying about, even for, the, even for it to happen once in the whole history of our current universe. Probably wouldn't happen, the equivalent of something that weird. However, this is the power of infinity. If you had an infinite universe, not only would it happen once, it's guaranteed to happen an infinite number of times, mm. okay? So something as weird as all the air in your room collects in the corner and you die would happen an infinite number of times in an infinite universe. So that basically means any uh, quantum uh, event, a collection of quantum events, no matter how unlikely in an infinite universe will not only occur, but will occur an infinite number of times. Okay. So now let's extend that to a really fucked up example, uh, which is that a whole brain could come into existence by a quantum fluctuation. Literally, it emerges from empty space and could be a brain. Let's say a brain just like yours, right? Uh, and not only is it a brain just like yours, but it's full of all the memories you already have, right? Mm -hmm. Even though it never existed, because those memories are just chemicals, right? And if you assemble the chemicals correctly, it would have every memory that you had would be identical to you in every way. So the Boltzmann brain can emerge from vacuum mm. through a exceedingly low probability quantum series of events, such that it would never, ever happen in our actual universe, not even once. Uh, but it could, but in an infinite universe, it's guaranteed to happen not just once, but an infinite number of times. So now let's go a step further. Let's imagine the emergence of a Boltzmann brain so powerful that it can simulate our universe. Hmm. Okay. And you'd say in our own universe, definitely didn't happen. There's not enough uh, material to create a Boltzmann brain big enough to simulate our universe within, our, within a finite universe. But if the universe were infinite, it's guaranteed that an infinite number of times a randomly emergent from the vacuum with no history uh, brain big enough to simulate uh, you know our classical universe the one that's you know supposedly 13.6 billion years old is guaranteed to exist pop into existence from quantum fluctuation and if there's an infinite number of those uh, it basically strongly implies which there would be uh, that our universe is almost certainly a quantum fluctuation running in one of these Boltzmann brains. So don't wish for an infinite universe. It takes you down too many bizarre rattles. <laughs> it is quite bizarre. It is yeah, quite here, bizarre. And here's another, here's another thing uh, for everyone to know about. Don't think about Boltzmann brains while tripping. Very yeah. bad. <laughs> 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 yeah, you leave that one. You leave that one for coffee. That's a coffee. That's yeah, a coffee, coffee thought. Coffee and cigars, right? Yeah, you that want, is you a want, cigar you, thought. You want to be grounded as possible yeah, uh, when you think is, about Boltzmann brains. Yeah. But anyway, that's kind of a bizarre tale about why I reject on aesthetic grounds an infinite universe. Because I don't want no goddamn Boltzmann brains, and I certainly mm. don't want our universe being simulated inside of Boltzmann brains. Hmm. It's really. It's really, that's such a rabbit hole and the simulation <laughs> thing is just so interesting. It's like, how do you know? And why would you care? Do you really care? I don't know. It feels the same to me. How would I know? But yeah, it's a rabbit hole. And I just say, fuck that. It ain't yeah. there. We have one universe. It's relatively finite. It may be really, really big, but really, really big is different than infinite. Yeah. Uh, it's lawful as far as we know. So let's just go out and explore the universe we live in uh -huh. and fuck all these alternative theories uh -huh. other than 
to chat about when we're in the mood yeah. to talk about weird shit. Yeah. Which is so interesting. And I, that's, I love this space for that. Exactly that. But there's, um, the other day, just a week ago, I had my longest paragliding flight ever. I flew for six hours. I flew a hundred hours. Yeah. 170.53 kilometers from where I took off. And, um, so I had beat my previous record by some seven miles or something, not that far. So this is one of these deals where you fly along the edge of a mountain where there's uplifts continuously, that kind of thing. I know. So, so to, to help you understand this, I'll have to kind of like teach you a little bit of how the earth breathes, which won't surprise you, but it's, Oh, by the way, I am a trained pilot. So I understand. Oh, you are the the, uh, aerodynamics of airplanes and lift and all that horse. Okay. So essentially I have a nylon, you know, ripstop fabric airfoil that is suspended by lines. And I have a harness that is seated. And I use the wind to inflate this thing on top of a mountain. And I go flying off the mountain. And then uh, what I'm looking for are thermals, the updrafts. And the sun heats the earth. The earth releases that heat and it rises sometimes like a bubble sometimes like a column, but always invisible. And well, septic can turn then into thunderstorms, right? Yes, of course, of course. So there is this incredibly complex combination of all of these different forces from wind to humidity to temperature to atmospheric stability, pressure, cloud cover, just it never it never ends and that doesn't even start to start talking about what's on the ground how much energy is it going to soak up how much energy is it going to release uh when it releases what's that going to look like is what is the rate at which it's going to rise um all of these things right and at the end of this flight i had i had flown for 6 hours i'd gotten to a maximum altitude of 14,215 feet. 14,000, Jesus. 14,000. Did you have oxygen with you? Nope, no oxygen. But you're a super athlete, so you got lots of red blood cells. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I came on the radio and told my friends, I said, this is Harry. I'm at 14,000 feet. I haven't lost my mind yet, it seems. <laughs> they say, keep going, dude, keep going. I'm, like, ah, I'm okay. going. Um, and I landed after flying over just so much terrain, like so many different places, it's crazy. And I realized, I said to my friend, the amount of stimulus information I have to outright reject to make this whole fucking thing go around is absurd. It's mind boggling how much sensory input I have to wholly disregard because the level of complexity of the substrate that I am trying to operate in, like the atmosphere, the atmosphere of invisible gases that I am operating in is so incredibly complex that I have to dumb it down to the things that I call thermals and the things that I call clouds. And where there's a cloud, I hope there's a thermal. And that's some indication. It's either a dust devil on the ground or a cloud in the sky. And there's some kind of thermal in between those two. It is like, it is like the, the world is this incredible IMAX 
you know, 8K, 3D, surround sound, Technicolor thing. And I am this like fucking, like I'm a Pong. I'm a Pong game. I am, a, yep. I am processing it with the, the processor out of Pong. Beep, yep. boop, beep. Yep. Exactly. I, I love this. I love this. Okay. What this is, of course, is the extraction of signal from noise, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, the universe isn't, I mean, let's say the air and, and what you're floating around isn't noise, but from the perspective of not dying, it is, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and not so, landing, not landing. Yeah, as we used to say in the, in the flying game, you know, taking off is optional, landing is mandatory. Yes, right? it is. <laughs> and uh, so you have to do a massive dimensional reduction to a tractable signal because uh, humans are not very smart. In fact, of all my quotes, the one I hope I am remembered for the longest is that of all possible general intelligence, humans are approximately the most stupid. Uh, and the reason for that is that we're the first, at least in our evolutionary line here on Earth. Uh, and therefore, by the way evolution works, it's almost certain we're just barely over the line, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as I've learned more about uh, cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, I've become more uh, firm on this view, you know, the famous working memory size of seven plus or minus two. If we had a memory size, a working memory size of a hundred, we would be way smarter than Einstein, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so much smarter, it's hard to visualize. And in fact, you would fly uh, using many more cues, not just trying to cook it down to Pong. Uh, maybe you'd uh, cook it down to uh, Ms. Pac-Man or something, right? <laughs> and so this, this dimensional reduction is, uh, is what we do. It's how we live in the world. I'll give you an example. The one I again, the, the model animal I use in my uh, modeling of human of consciousness, not human consciousness, is the white-tailed deer. And the white-tailed deer, just like you, lives in this complicated world, complex world of wind and uh, plants and animals and noises and jets flying over and trucks driving by and all this sort of stuff. And Mr. Deer is in a very difficult balance, which is skittishness versus eating. Uh, you know, Mr. Deer eats sticks and grass, shit that doesn't have a very high nutritional value. He's got to eat a lot of sticks and a lot of grass to survive, particularly if he wants to be strong enough to reproduce in the fall, either if it's a he, uh, win the battle of the bucks and get to peg every female within a thousand acres, or be a uh, healthy and fertile female and uh, get impregnated and reproduce, both of which require you to win the battle of eating. However, uh, if you just spend all your time on eating, you're more likely to get eaten than eat, right? Mm. Uh, a hunter will get you, a bear will get you, uh, you might get run over by a, a vehicle. Uh, and so uh, deer have a trade-off between skittishness and tendency to focus on their eating. And they vary. And I believe they vary both genetically and by social learning from their mother, principally. And so uh, deer that are uh, completely non-skittish, they eat a lot. They get nice and fat, but unfortunately, they often get eaten. Uh, you know, the hunter gets them, right, uh, before they get a chance to reproduce. Well, the one that's super, super skittish, uh, the hunter never gets them, very seldom. Uh, but guess what? They don't put on enough nutrition to be able to reproduce. Uh, so mm. this, uh, this gigantically high-dimensionally complex world the deer lives in can essentially be at least analytically reduced to skittishness, one dimension. That's really interesting. I, my best friend lives on Maui, 
he's incredibly industrious. He built this beautiful, he loves to build bows. He'll go find a, the perfect piece of wood. He'll hand shape the bow. He'll, yep, exactly. And so on Maui, there's this type of deer. It's called an axis deer. And it was brought over from the Indians, like from India in the 1800s as a gift to King Kamehameha. And it was like, um, they brought five of them. And these deer, they're really small. They're, you know, they're not nearly as big as a whitetail. They're really small, but they're incredibly skittish and they're incredibly in tune because their predator in the wild was a fucking tiger. So I like it. Because they had to be so skittish because tigers were after them. I think maybe, you know, as I, as I lay your example over that, I wonder, oh man, are these deer just genetically small because they've had to be so skittish because they're running away from a predator that is just so fucking good that they just good, don't Good, have but limited. Good, but limited. You know, a tiger is hugely... Uh, I mean, you get in a fight with a tiger, you're going to lose. But a, a tiger can't run very far. Uh, you know, it's, it's burst range, I don't know, it's 50 yards or something. Uh, so if you can accelerate fast enough and get 50 yards away at the speed of a deer uh, and the tiger doesn't get you, you're good, good to go. Mm -hmm. So, again, the, you know, the nature of the predator defines the nature of the response, exactly. right? Exactly. Well, let's get back to your uh, paragliding. Uh, when you're actually doing it, do you feel this dimensional reduction or is that dimensional reduction happening unconsciously, do you think? I.e., you know, thinking of simplifying the world down to thermals, clouds, and, and mountains or whatever, whatever your simple reduction is. No, no. It feels, like, it feels like information overload. It feels like information overload. It feels like there's signal everywhere and, and only with experience can you start to just let some of that go? Like typically, if you imagine, as, as people learn to paraglide, one, as they learn to fly cross country, which is what we're talking about, cross country paragliding, one of the hardest parts is how much lift does it take for me to turn around in? Because obviously if I'm trying to go 100 miles, but if I'm in a paraglider to go up, I have to find that column of rising air and then I sit there and I, I do circles inside of it. Right. So the amount of time I sit there doing circles, I'm not going down course line. So if I'm flying along and I have a little uh, beeper that's a variometer, a vertical speed indicator. And, you know, if I'm flying along and I'm looking for lift and I get a beep of lift, oh, I get excited. And as a beginner, I turn around for that, but it's not really there. But as an expert, I just, I get a little beep of lift. I fly right through that. And only when I hit beep, 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 and I'm really fucking going up, then do I turn and I, I hook it. So, um, but in general, it is like, there's wind speed, there's terrain, there's, you know, and this, like, I flew a hundred miles and I left a mountain, I flew over another mountain range and then another small mountain range, but this isn't like in the Alps, when we fly in the Alps, we are in the mountains all day long. And so it adds another layer or three of complexity to valley winds and to solar aspect and to all these different things. And so, I mean, I think there is a part that is uh, consciously, I, I just disregard that. I say, oh, a little beep. Nope, disregard. Just keep flying straight. 
But there's also a part where I'm just like, I'm so hungry for input. I'm so hungry for signal that I just like, I try to take it all in. The things that, that, that fall out of the bottom of that are like my aesthetic experience. Like I literally go flying over these, the most beautiful fucking places and I just say, no, ignore it. Don't, you can't look at that shit right now. Like you got not meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that meaningful. there's this beautiful valley down below me actually means nothing compared yeah. to the fact that there's, you know, a rocky granite, granite cliff 300 feet to my left. A hell, exactly. of a, lot more, a hell of a lot more important signal, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, that's, uh, that is what intelligence is, essentially, is uh, deriving the, the actionable filter. signal from the complex. Uh-huh, filter. Yeah, and it's modeling too, right? And again, at the expert level, you have a hugely rich model, mostly unconscious, uh, that you're populating by the signal reduction. And, you know, it's like, all right, granite wall, 300 feet to the left, right? Updraft, really high. It'd be great to use it, but if that thing is even moving a little bit to the right, I'm fucked, right? Yeah. Uh, what's the probability that I'll be fucked? Oh, it's 10%. That's way too high a probability to want to yeah. be fucked, right? So let's ignore yeah. this thermal and let's drift down and find another one, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and that, that stuff at that at expert level is almost all unconscious because you couldn't do it fast enough in the conscious mm -hmm. mind. Yeah. You know, the conscious mind's actually pretty slow. You know, bit rate is something like 50 bits a second. It's terrible. But the unconscious mind is this amazing parallel computer, which is more powerful than any computer on earth. So, uh, you know, that's why interesting. That's, that's why really experts, to be truly an expert means to internalize and yeah, not have in the conscious mind. It's like playing tennis, right? If you're thinking about playing tennis, you're not really playing tennis, right? That's uh, really interesting, Jim, because. I'm also a professional highliner, which is a type of slack lining. I balance on a one inch wide piece of rope over the void. Um, so like a, that's a like tight rope walking kind of thing. Yeah. It's kind of like, like tight like, rope. Like that, like that guy did between the two, uh, uh, towers towers. Yeah. I saw that movie. Yeah. That was fucking that bomb movie was a bomb. It was great. Yeah. Whenever people see us do this, they ask us a couple of questions. One, how do you get the line across? And two, have you seen man on wire? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, I have seen Manowire. And the so way they got it across is they shot an arrow across right. with a guideline, which then oh, they pulled right. the heavier line across yep. with that, right? Yep. We do that. We use drones. We use fucking, I've used a potato cannon. We've used all kinds ah, of shit. I love it. <laughs> and it's cool. But this is, um, you know, in July, we set the world record last July. We set the world record. We did a 1.25 mile long slack line. Better okay. you than me, white boy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. We did it. We did it in Quebec, uh, across this uh, abandoned mine in a town called Asbestos. Because yes, this was the was original. Asbestos mine. This was the original Asbestos mine. Uh, oh, very interesting. Um, How long did it take to go a mile? Would you say a mile and a quarter? Yeah, one point two five. It was. I was second fastest at an hour and forty five minutes. Um, People took as long as four hours to cross. <laughs> so this is funny what you're talking about, this like internalized thing or the, the bit rate at which my conscious mind can do something versus my subconscious mind. Or even I would even go from subconscious mind like that becomes like my body because my yeah, that's body. Why I use, that's um, why I use the term unconscious mind rather than oh, okay. subconscious okay. mind. Unconscious. The subconscious mind is kind of kind of overloaded with like Freudian mystique yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of close to 
the conscious mind. Uh -huh. The unconscious mind, to my mind, is closer to the body in some yeah, ways. Yeah. Or, or it's, it's a it's somatic. Like, it's a somatic it's, intelligence. It's, or, or it's, but it's in the it's in the It's a bouncing between the body and the brain Absolutely. in a way that you're not aware of at all. Right. Absolutely. And one of the coolest things of this sport, Jim, is that. I literally, no matter how hard I try, I could never say left foot forward, right knee out, right arm down. I can never like consciously balance on a slack line. I could never do it. It is this monkey part of me that I have to, I have to train all of the human responses out of myself. Like I'm afraid I'm going to die. This is really stupid. <laughs> you know, like... Um, all these different, all these different things that would typically keep a person off of a ridiculously long slack line. I have to train those things out of myself and the things that naturally arise in that absence is the ability to just let my body balance step after step after step after step. Interesting. Let's, we could take this back to our earlier conversation about, uh, hierarchical complexity, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, from the perspective of, let's say, a camera hooked to a deep learning AI watching mm -hmm. you do this, it's probably fairly simple. Mm -hmm. I could reduce it to balance and your speed and this and that. But inside of you, it's amazingly complex to yeah. process this data. And as we talked about before, to ignore most of the data, uh -huh. like including the fact, I'm scared the fuck I'm going <laughs> to die, right? That's useless. You, know, you definitely don't want to process that data at all. It's not yeah. good data. And so inside this amazingly complex machinery that's reducing vast amounts of input to a small amount of signal, then plugging the signal into a relatively complex model that's producing mm -hmm. relatively simple behaviors, yeah. right? So again, it's a perfect example of whole, whole on hierarchy. Uh, simplicity at the level of your behavior, uh, complexity at the level of the signal transduction and the model processing. Mm -hmm. So it's the world's all that way. Simple, complex, complex, simple. Stack yeah, I really like this. I really like this. And this was one of the things I was hoping to talk to you about just in general, how do we look at complexity? And, and I think that the idea that we never look at complexity as the, as everything, we don't, we don't dismiss everything reductionist. It is all Mandelbrotting. It is all emerging. It is all just unfolding. It is stacked on stacked on stacked, simple and complex and simple on simple and complex on complex. And uh, though usually uh, complex, simple, complex, simple, I think it's generally layered uh, that way. And that just seems to be a weird aspect of the nature of complexity. And it's an area that complex science may actually be able to explain someday this tendency for the, th the two to be coupled, uh, you know, one within the other. I would also say that Mandelbrot, while I understand where you're coming from. The Mandelbrot is cool. The more you dig in, the more you see the, in an yeah. equal amount of detail, maybe even more. But in reality, the Mandelbrot is flat. The Mandelbrot flat, uh, uh, set is actually flat. You could actually uh -huh. lay it out on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about complexity is it's more like contained, one contained within the other. Uh, you know, like, so, you know, think about you as the classic complex system. Starts relatively low with your atoms and your atoms are contained within a molecule. Mm -hmm. The molecules contained within a, uh, 
a metabolism in a cell and a whole bunch of sub, sub metabolisms. The cell is contained within a tissue. The tissue is contained within an organ. The organ is contained within a system. The system is contained within the human. The human is contained within a civilization. Right? Uh -huh. So we think about uh, three dimensional at least, and actually three dimensional is probably short of the real story, uh, but it's uh, a, a deeper way of looking at it than Mandelbrot, which is, could literally be flattened out to a piece of paper. And as uh -huh. long as you have a better and better magnifying glass, you yep. can look at more and more of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but a great visualization for us to start understanding how that kind of thing works. I'm curious, is the layering that you're talking about, is that actually, does that actually exist or is that merely just how we are looking at it? That's a damn good question. It's one that uh, scientists disagree with, right? Uh -huh. Are these just abstractions uh, or do they have something like a realness to them? And well, of course, everything that we can describe in words is an abstraction and loses a lot of, of important detail. Uh, to my mind, uh, they are real. And uh, the, the level at which you can determine their realness is the flow of information. Go so on. what, is the, what is the information or actually let's go further call it signal that binds them together you know for instance i said earlier the signal that binds together your you at the top level is a homeostasis of uh, you know gases toxins and food right mm -hmm. those are the signals that hold the whole damn thing together uh and in the absence of those signals uh, you ain't you no more mm -hmm. uh, you're just a pile of rotten meat mm -hmm. uh and uh so uh, and, and those signals are of a rather specific sort and so the number of simple signals is fairly simple, and the emergent result, which goes down layer upon layer, is profoundly complex. And so the fact that there can be identified a relatively simple signal set at a given layer, uh, to my mind, indicates that you probably have something that you can at least treat as if it's real, a real layer. Mm. But I, so, and again, this is a tough philosophical question. Everything is arbitrary at some level, but if you can find this common signaling uh, modality uh, at a level, then it's probably okay to think of it as a level and as if it were real and treat it as if it were real because it's actually useful to treat it as if it were real. Yeah, because as, as we talk about this, I could imagine the layers being exactly like the things that I am like when we get to something that we call a simple layer, that's just something where we are ignoring the complexity, where, we're, where it's bouncing off of our foreheads. And then when we get to a complexity layer, we are kind of embracing it and it's not bouncing off our foreheads as much. And then we get to a simple layer and we ignore it, we filter it. And so I could see it from that perspective as well. Yeah, and that is very right. Coarse graining is one of the terms from science, which is that you intentionally ignore a large amount of detail. Uh, for instance, when you're flying your paraglider, I guarantee you, you're not, you're not in any way concerned about uh, what's going on inside your cells at a biochemical layer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's just not relevant to making a decision on how to fly a paraglider. Yeah. Uh, Until I'm and, just totally bonking because I'm starving and I'm thirsty you know <laughs> yeah. but those are simple those are simpler signals right those are, that's a trans yeah. a transduction upward of sure. uh, uh, okay the, the poor cells they don't have enough glucose yeah but some but somehow that gets communicated up to your brain which says i'm hungry as shit and i'm about yeah. to pass out motherfucker where's my snicker bar right yeah. uh 
what, I presume for a long trip like that, you have to carry some food with you, right? Of course. Yep. And I wear a condom you, catheter and I have a camelback and I have snacks and yeah. What kind of snacks do you have? Well, typically uh, the first thing that I'll eat is an apple. I might have two apples. I love uh, apples. Me too. And um, yeah, it's really fun to eat things in the sky because it's just absurd. It's just like, <laughs> you know, 14,000 feet having, ah, a, on having apple, a fucking honey crisp, an organic honey crisp at 14K is pretty sweet. Um, but I also eat these like, you know, super high protein, protein bars, something with 20 grams of protein, you know, like the $4 a, a bar things that'll actually oh, but isn't too high in, in fiber you might have yeah. a problem <laughs> yeah. so so um yeah you got to keep those systems going when you're up there just so your brain works right and exactly hard. that that's the linkage between levels right because mm -hmm. yeah, that is down at a fairly low level and yet it has an impact up right and it's a good example of downward causality right the decision you make at the top to eat the candy bar or the protein bar actually causes something to change at the lower level and this is again one of the things that people love to talk about in terms of complexity is it real this concept of downward causality that you know some decision you make at the top actually causes the atoms to behave differently at a lower level mm -hmm. uh, and you know I convinced myself I may be wrong but I'm convinced that this downward causality is very real and is uh, one of the spooky parts of existence that we don't understand well enough yet Okay, so, so help me understand this downward causality. Yeah, okay, so you're down in your cells are a bunch of atoms dancing around, molecules mm -hmm. were precisely dancing around, and normally they just dance around based on local signals near them about other atoms and, you know, things of that sort. Uh, and you would say it's kind of odd that atoms could be told what to do by a human 15 layers mm -hmm. up in the stack, but yet... A simple-minded decision, you know, again, think about sim uh, uh, signal reduction, complexity reduction. You have to make a decision to eat that bar or not. Quite mm -hmm. simple, you know, one bit, yes or no, mm -hmm. one bit of information mm -hmm. uh, that you process at, at the conscious level. And that's a decision you will make consciously. Uh, will float all the way down mm -hmm. to jiggle those molecules in a, in a few minutes as mm -hmm. the decision to uh, eat the bar goes down to your gut, you know, the you know, digestion occurs, glucose goes out. Some of the glucose goes to these little poor little molecules and they start dancingly, dancing differently. Uh -huh. uh, but of course, there's also upward causality because when the molecules aren't happy, they let you know. And that's when your brain uh, stops your, working. Yeah, and your brain starts saying, I'm hungry, goddammit. So you got this bottom up, top down mm. dynamic, which is why complexity is neat and why everything interesting in the universe is structured as hierarchical complexity, or at least so I am reasonably convinced. Hmm. Everything is structured as hierarchical complexity, as you're convinced. Hmm. Yeah. What is the shape of that? You know, in Eisenstein's book, he kind of talks about just like the shapes of the, the shapes of the, the worlds, the shapes of the symbols that ancient things have used. Like behind me, I have like a mandala. And it's round, and the you know the the markaba from Judaic mysticism is just like this interconnected. The Sri Yantra, all of these like very round things, like the system is contained and always playing into itself. Is the what is the shape of your uh, in 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 your mind there when you talk about hierarchical complexity? What is the shape of this 
structure. It's funny. I've never actually tried to visualize it, but let me try to do so. All right, here I'm going to do it. It's a series, and this is a very simple uh, graphical representation, pseudographical, because it's just in my head. Uh, imagine a series of, let's use Harold Moritz's 27 concentric spheres, one inside the other, kind of like a Chinese doll. And between each sphere is this crazy, crackly, staticky, wild, uh, but somehow structured uh, cloud. Mm -hmm. So it's sphere, cloud, sphere, cloud, sphere, cloud, and the clouds are not static. They're going, <laughs> uh, and you know, like a science fiction movie, right? And 27 of them, one inside the other. And so there's my uh, synthetic aesthetic vision of mm -hmm. uh, hierarchical complexity. Simple, complex, simple, complex, simple, complex, 27 layers deep. Mm, that's really interesting. And I think that that is somewhat represented in things like the Sri Yantra, these nested series of triangles that are nested inside of a series of larger circles and that kind of thing. That's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're on to something, Rut. I think you're on to something. Well, you know, even a blind pig finds an acorn once in a while, right? <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, it's been great talking to you, man. I think this yeah. is this has been. Uh, I think we definitely. I definitely. I feel like I got out of you what I was looking for today. Like the, you know, your thought on the the shape of complexity. I think that's an interesting topic. The shape of complexity, and you know, uh, and the more I listen to Jordan Hall, he tends to say that most of the things that he thinks about are somehow like structurally represented in his head, like architecturally somehow like they're all puzzle pieces fitting together. And so I think the, the shape of complexity, as Jim puts it, this 27 layers of nebulous, fizzling, hot, combusting clouds inside of concentric spheres, spheres. Like, a my, Rus uh, like a Russian nesting doll. But with crazy clouds of complexity between each one. Yeah. 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 And then, okay, so... So if the, if the clouds are crazy complexity, then what are the spheres themselves? They're the layer of simplicity. And, and what does that fabric look like? As we Is that like just that. very basic canvas? Is that just canvas? Oh, in terms of an actual thing, I just sort of imagine it as, uh, you know, a bland, uh, hard surface like ceramic or something like that, mm. right? It could, it could be canvas. It could be skin. Uh, <laughs> in fact, actually, it probably should be... Uh, canvas or skin and here's why uh the other if you want to add to the model of complexity every one of these simple layers is a semi-permeable membrane yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, gonna ask. shit goes in shit goes out quite literally in the case of a human but uh, at least the shit goes out right <laughs> uh, and, and and uh so in general uh particularly in bio certainly in biological systems but also in other systems but this is used biology as a good example in economics shit goes in and out and mm -hmm. semi-permeable and the definition of that membrane is absolutely critical to what's going on mm -hmm. you know for instance you put uh, cyanide in your mouth you will die right mm -hmm. uh, if you put your uh, protein bar in your mouth your your molecules 15 layers deep will be happy right yep. uh and so the decision about what permeate what penetrates the membrane uh is in a significant degree the organizing principle of what binds this hierarchical complexity together Hmm. It lets signal 
go through the simple down mm-hmm. to the complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can't be ceramic. It has to be. It has to be canvas, and it can't be waxed. It can't nope. be waxed. It's got to be. Nope. It's, it's almost more like burlap. It's almost yeah, more like burlap. Yeah. Yeah, though if it's too burlappy, you will die. It has to be the right <laughs> appropriate amount of permeability. The permeability has to be right. Oh, man. This has been great. It's been a, a great conversation. I think we've talked about, uh, you know, many, many levels of thinking from the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the quite basic to the quite to Boltzmann brains, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been fun. Yeah, really fun, Jim. Let's do it again soon. Sounds good. Take care, buddy. You too. Be safe up there, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to keep this organism going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get, gotta keep that homeostasis going. That's right. That's right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, you guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much, Jim, for coming on. That was super fun, as always. And very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, this is... Jim's definitely one of the most interesting boomers out. And we haven't okay boomered him yet. So we're glad to have him around. So, like I said, if you guys like this podcast, share and subscribe and leave a five-star review. I, um, you know, it's a funny story about my reviews. It seems like, seems like we've upset some people. We've gotten some two-star reviews out there. No, I don't blame them. I don't blame them, but uh, if you want to leave a five-star review, that helps a lot. Um, you can also donate paypal.me slash in the air. Really appreciate your support there, and I hope to see you, hear you, listen to you, have, have you listened to me, question mark, on the next episode. So stay tuned, everybody. Stay safe, stay sane, stay happy. We'll talk soon. But it's just safer to keep you in this heart of mine